2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Boston, Boston, Boston. It's no surprise many of Connecticut's young people often look to Beantown as the place to live. Well, if you follow the development of autonomous vehicle technology, Boston is where it's at too. Coming up, we'll hear how at least two AV companies are piloting self-driving cars there. City officials launched an autonomous vehicle testing program to consider ways to make its transportation system safer, manageable and better for the environment, among other goals. We'll talk with the guy in charge of Boston City Hall's research and development team. That's later. Now, next month, UConn will host a symposium on the future of autonomous vehicles. I'll be moderating one of the panels at the Storrs campus April 1st. It got the Where We Live team thinking about AV technology and the questions you may have about the future of self-driving cars. Later, we'll hear from an expert in the UK about the human factors that will impact how autonomous vehicles are rolled out. First, like it or not, autonomous vehicles are coming. I told my eight-year-old son about today's show and his reaction to robots driving him around one day? No way would I trust a robot. Does that sound like you? Join us, 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, what are some other questions about AVs that we may not be thinking about? City Labs podcast, Technologist, has an episode all about this. To tell us more, joining us now by phone is Molly Turner. She's co-host of the Technopolis podcast, also an urban planner, and she teaches at the Berkeley Haas School of Business. Uh, Molly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So later on, as I mentioned, we're going to get into the more traditional questions being asked about AVs, including safety and how they're being tested in cities like Boston. But your podcast episode, one of them, uh, you took a different approach to thinking about the future of AVs. And the question that you started with is, what happens if someone vomits in an AV? (laughs) Please explain to us uh, why you decided to take that approach, Molly.
0: So you know, a lot of people are really excited about AVs and all of the positive impacts they're going to have. They'll, you know, reduce congestion and eliminate traffic accidents and make our commute more productive. Other folks are really pessimistic about them. They think it'll lead to, you know, suburban sprawl and, uh, you know, killing the wonderful things that make our cities so great for uh, pedestrians and bikers today. What we were interested in the podcast was, What happens when AVs actually work and they're on our city streets and there are all these other things we still have to figure out, like how do we make the ride smooth enough that we don't get car sick every time we're in them? And when we do get car sick, who's going to clean it up if it's an unmanned vehicle? Where do the cars go to get cleaned?
2: Uh, You um, talk with several people in the particular episode of Technopolis that we're focusing on. Uh, Tell us a little bit first about Neuro and the conversation you had. This is an AV startup. I believe uh, Nan was her name. And um, the idea that we like to think about when self-driving cars are around us, it's going to be bringing us somewhere. Uh, But she was talking about it's really going to be about moving goods before people. Can you tell us more?
0: Yeah, so one of the biggest challenges with AVs is how to make the ride smooth enough for human beings to actually enjoy it. Um, and just like your son, you know, there are a lot of folks who maybe aren't going to be so excited to get in an <laughs> un- unmanned vehicle. So Neuro's solution is actually to drive around goods. They've partnered with the grocery store, Kroger, to actually Uh, drop off your groceries at your home, kind of the same way Uber might come and pick you up. They drop off groceries at your home, and they've actually raised about a billion dollars from the venture capital firm, SoftBank. So they're growing real fast right now.
2: Uh, When people hear about uh, these kinds of startups and even automation in general, there's concern about how uh, these uh, kinds of technologies will displace people, this idea of, you know, just having groceries delivered to your house uh, uh, by a self-driving car. There's no longer, I know in uh, New England, we have a Peapod, so at least there's a driver who's delivering groceries, so he has a job. Uh, So these are questions that people have about how technology is going to disrupt life as we know it, but also changing our human behavior. Yeah, there's
0: there's a lot of questions, not only about what the impact AVs might have on the workforce. Uh, you know, driving is one of the biggest jobs across America today. Um, so, what's it going to do to all those folks who might lose a job? But also, what impact might AVs have on the rest of us in cities? So, a great scenario one of our guests on the show, Jeff Tumlin, uses. He's a transportation planner. Um, you he talks about what happens if uh, you know that every single vehicle will automatically stop for any human being that gets in front of it, right? One of the great benefits of AVs is that they're, they're hopefully going to eliminate traffic accidents. So if you're a pedestrian and you're standing on a corner on a rainy evening, what would stop you from walking out into traffic if you know that every vehicle is going to automatically stop? Most people are going to just walk right out into the street. So how do we figure out how to keep pedestrians away from cars? Well, the solution that a lot of folks are working on right now is actually criminalizing jaywalking even more than we have today. So increasing fines and using facial recognition and surveillance to actually punish people for doing that. And that solution is might be good for the AVs keep people out of the way of the AVs, but it's not so great for pedestrians. Is that something we really want to do? We kind of have to gut check what problem are we trying to solve? Are we trying to make autonomous vehicles work or are we trying to help get everybody around cities better regardless of whether they walk or bike or are in an AV? And these are some of the human questions I think we need to ask about this technology.
2: Uh, That uh, question is also, it's problematic to think about ways to get pedestrians out of the way because when we think about how cities have developed uh, in recent decades, it's always been about the car and not about encouraging people to use sidewalks to uh, be able to feel safe on their bicycle, commuting to and from work. As an urban planner, uh, do you feel like cities are thinking about these approaches or is it more about trying to plan development around these AVs that are coming down the line?
0: You know, I'm seeing a real mix, and a lot of how cities approach this has to do with how they think about cars right now. You know, we've had cars in cities for about 100 years, and some cities have really been planned around the car, probably the most famous being Los Angeles. Other cities existed way before cars, and squeezing cars in, you know, didn't always work so well. Um, There are a lot of cities around the world that are – starting to remove cars from their downtowns altogether, making streets pedestrian only, or we're talking a lot about, like in New York right now, congestion pricing. Do we charge people extra for the privilege to drive into the city at certain times of day to reduce um, traffic? So when it comes to autonomous vehicles, some cities are are quite weary of them and say, you know, this is going to create a lot of problems for us. This is actually doing the opposite of what we're trying to do right now, getting vehicles off the road and opening it up to pedestrians and cyclists, um, whereas other cities, I think, are really excited about autonomous vehicles. Um, you know, they either want to be the first to have them on the streets or they see them as solving some of the commuting challenges they have because, let's face it, you know, if, if you've got a, a public bus uh, without a driver, that brings down the cost of running a public transportation system. And so autonomy might actually be really beneficial to some of those cities.
2: On the phone with us Molly Turner, co-host of City Labs Technopolis Podcast. Also, she's an urban planner and teaches at the Berkeley Haas School of Business. We're focusing in on the development of autonomous vehicle technology today. You can join us too, the number 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, David's actually calling from Stores. David, go ahead with your question or comment.
1: Hi. Um, I live in Stores where the University of Connecticut a few years ago Uh, got very aggressive about uh, cars stopping for people in crosswalks, and they uh, put in these very boldly painted crosswalks and so on. And, yes, you're supposed to stop for pedestrians in crosswalks. But um, the backlash from that is that students don't even look when they go out into crosswalks and a lot of times don't even look when they cross the street. And bicycles, uh, you know, pretending to be pedestrians do the same thing the year that they did that, uh, that summer, there were a few serious bike accidents where bikes would just zip across the crosswalk and people got hit. So I, I wanted to reinforce the comment that uh, your, your guest made a few minutes ago.
2: Oh, about how uh, the question of whether uh, AVs, whether on the roads, are people going to uh, be walking in front of them, just expecting this, uh, this autonomous vehicle to stop and what that does to traffic and, and safety?
1: Yeah, exactly, and you know, here's a, here's a data point that says yes, this is a serious issue.
2: <laughs> well, David, thank you for your call, Molly. Did you want to um, add to David what he was yeah. saying? I know we touched we touched on that.
0: Sure. So that's actually the the stop sign controlled uh, intersection actually presents a real tough challenge for autonomous vehicles, as uh, Jeff Cumlin, our guest, said on the podcast. You know. Um, There are not a lot of easy ways to engineer ourselves out of that problem because when you are driving a car and, you know, deciding whether or not to uh, cross the intersection and there are pedestrians and cyclists, the way we sort these things out is socially, we make eye contact with each other. How do you do that when there isn't a person driving the car? Um, And that's a real stumper. One of the things that Jeff actually suggests is that maybe we put some electronic smiley faces on the front of cars (laughs) so that at least the humans can look at the cars and, and based on their uh, facial uh, expressions, decide whether or not they're going to go, and the cars can make some expression back to the pedestrians and cyclists. We'll see if that actually works out.
2: Uh, coming up, we're going to talk to a U.K. researcher who's looking at the human factors of how we interact uh, with autonomous vehicle technology and how to make it uh, truly safe. Uh, I wanted to go back to uh, what your guest from Noro talked about on the Technopolis podcast about um, when we think about uh, what autonomous vehicles will mean for our cities, our neighborhoods. I believe she was saying that, that for them, um, maybe AVs will work better uh, in the suburbs. But then it it brings up the question of will AVs, as you mentioned, I guess the more pessimistic view that some people have is, will this encourage more suburban sprawl, Uh, Molly?
0: Yeah. So, you know, one of the benefits that people like to talk about with AVs is um, they'll make our commutes more productive. So neuro is is, um, just driving around groceries right now, not people. Um, And they're doing it in the suburbs because it's a lot easier to do in the suburbs where there's less traffic, fewer pedestrians and cyclists to contend with. The roads are a lot bigger. It's just a simple problem. And it's a great place for their technology to kind of learn uh, how to navigate the streets in an easy environment. But when we do end up driving around people in AVs, um, you know, people... People are really excited that, you know, I won't have to be behind the wheel anymore. I can sit in the passenger seat. I can do my email. I can watch a movie. I can shop. There are all kinds of things you can do. And if you don't mind sitting in a car anymore, does that mean you're okay with a longer commute? And does that then incentivize us to build suburbs farther and farther away from where the jobs are and contribute to more sprawl, which is something that I and many of my fellow urban planners worry a lot about, not only because of the environment, but also because all this time in vehicle makes us pretty lonely and is having some negative impacts on our social fabric. Um we're trying to get people to live in denser cities. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the big questions is whether AVs is going to have the opposite impact.
2: Uh, as we head to break, uh, Molly, uh, in your podcast, uh, one of your guests uh, uh, looks at two different ver- uh, visions of an AV future, and he and he pulls it from Hollywood. So the movie WALL-E versus uh, Black Panther's Wakanda. Can you explain that for us?
0: <laughs> sure. So uh, Jeff thinks that You know, the best way to talk about the future of autonomous vehicles is to tell stories, because it's frankly really hard to imagine what these future scenarios might look like. But luckily, there are a lot of creative uh, movie directors who've done it for us. And if you look at the movie Wall-E, it paints a pretty sad picture of what might happen You know, humans in their autonomous vehicles, they never have to get up and walk anywhere. So they're lazy and obese and sip on their sodas all day long. Um, But then there's a really amazing creative vision that actually um, Hannah Beachflair just won an Oscar for, which is her vision of the golden city of Wakanda. She did a ton of research on this um, to think about what does the perfect future city look like where... Um, These new transportation technologies are integrated seamlessly with walking and biking and more traditional forms of transportation, Um, and she really focused on prioritizing people before the technology and before the cars, and it paints a really lovely picture of where we might be able to go.
2: Molly Turner, again, is co-host of the Technopolis podcast from CityLab, also an urban planner and teaches at the Berkeley Haas School of Business. Molly, it was a pleasure. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchil. Coming up, we're going to hear how U.K. researchers are studying so-called human factors around autonomous vehicle technology. And we'll get an update on what's happening in Connecticut with the prospect of self-driving cars on local roads. And we want to hear from you, too. Join us at the number 860-275-7266. And as always, just find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanschel. Are you excited by the idea of self-driving cars in the next couple of decades or worried about how they'll disrupt life as we know it? Join the conversation 860 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. AV companies are still working out the technology to make self-driving cars safe but there are still a lot of questions about how we humans will interact with them inside and outside the vehicles. The BBC reported the University of Southampton is leading a four-year research project to test so-called human factors. Uh, we want to know more about this. So joining us via conferencing app Zoom is Neville Stanton, Professor of Human Factors and Engineering at the University of Southampton in the UK. Neville, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. So tell us a little bit more. So you're a professor in human factors based in an engineering department. So tell us more about your field and what you're studying.
3: Okay, Lucy. So um, what we're really interested is in the intersection between some engineering technologies and human performance and behavior. So we're trying to explore the reactions of people, drivers in this instance, uh, to this new technology, which is the automated driving systems. And so we put people into simulated environments, um, as well as testing them out on uh, test tracks and also the open roads.
2: So you have a simulator car in your lab and people are testing, they're they're using this simulator. So who are the people that are are, uh, testing this out and what exactly are you looking for?
3: Okay, so uh, we've done uh, quite a few studies over the past couple of decades, Um, but essentially we try and look for a wide range of users, so uh, driving age um, to um, retirement age. So uh, our, our Typically, our expense involve anybody between the ages of 18 and 80.
2: So you said 18 to 80?
3: Yes, that's correct.
2: And uh, when we think about uh, technology coming on board here in uh, the U.S. and and also abroad about uh, where they're being tested, Um, coming up, we're going to talk to the city of Boston about safety protocols. Uh, When you look at your research, when we think about how some of these pilots, there's an actual human in the car kind of taking the back seat, so to speak, while the uh, autonomous vehicle is driving, based on your research, having that human there monitoring, is that a good thing?
3: Um, in a nutshell, I would say no. Um, it's not a task that people can keep up for very long. So we um, are, are interested in uh, the ability of the human to monitor the automation and intervene appropriately, um, which is this uh, sort of mixed level of automation. So they're not driving it manually at all. Their hands are off the steering wheel, their feet are off the pedals, and yet they're not freed up of the task of being able to do something else, which most is mostly why we do automation, so we can allow people to do other tasks so the task of monitoring we can say from our research is not something that can be sustained very long Um, i would say um based on our experience people might be able to keep it up for maybe between 20 to 40 minutes maximum but people quickly um, drift off and start doing other things so um both in the laboratory, on the test track and actually on the open road, we've noticed that people begin to trust the automation and start to like play with their cell phone or, you know, start looking away from the road, looking inside the cockpit, even looking behind them, mm. chatting to passengers in the in the rear of the vehicle, but certainly not monitoring the automation.
2: So what's the average time that uh, we can actually uh, be sitting in an autonomous vehicle based on your research with the simulator where we're not getting distracted, Neville?
3: I would say on on average, and this is a bit of a bit of a a pitch, um, you know, a rough um, pitch in the air, but roughly I would say around about 20 minutes is about as much as people can on average sustain, but we do find big individual differences in all of our research. So, um, sorry, that phone. Uh, we do find big individual differences. So, people, uh, some people will be able to continue to continue it for longer, and some for very much less.
2: When we think about Automation again. Uh, Neville Stanton joining us uh, via Zoom from the U.K. He's a professor of human factors and engineering at the University of Southampton. When we think about um, autonomous, uh, just you know, uh, services being automated, um, having a human there kind of as a monitor, airplanes have been largely automated for um, some time. You have pilots monitoring the autopilot. So how is that different when we think about human monitors inside a self-driving car?
3: Okay, that's a good analogy, and that's where we started when we began the research in the um, early 1990s. Um, But there's a a lot of very big differences between pilots of aircraft and uh, drivers of cars. First of all, um, the training differences are quite considerable. Uh, The level of professionalism to become a commercial pilot is quite exacting. Um, Secondly, there are two people in the cockpits, um, the first officer and the captain. Thirdly... Um, they are a long way from disaster, literally. Uh, in a in a motor vehicle, on a busy highway, you may be between one and two seconds between time to contact between you and the vehicles in front and behind. In the in air in in uh, cruise, you're maybe between thirty and 40,000 feet um, above sea level, and it will take a long time before you hit anything. <laughs> so there's There's considerable differences in the environments and indeed in the training um, and and the sorts of people in those different environments. I don't know about the US, but certainly to pass your driving test in the UK, it's fairly minimal.
2: (laughs) I guess it depends on where you are uh, in the US uh, for the driving test, uh, Neville. Uh, I wanted to uh, take a call now. Hardik is calling from Meriden. I'm sorry if I pronounced your name uh, incorrectly. What's your question?
4: Uh, I actually have a comment. So I'm uh, I'm an electrical engineer who graduated from Yukon, and uh, uh, I have a, one of the I'm a first early adopter for Tesla's autopilot feature. And a few months ago, the car decided to brake on its own because there was a vehicle whose blind spot I was in, and the car saw it and I didn't notice. And uh, I had a really great experience that showed me that the the cameras and uh, radars on the car was able to detect objects much better than my visual eyes and until people have that kind of experience i feel like people don't appreciate the safety that are coming up with these autonomous cars and uh, that's i think what's going to change people's mind uh, speaking long term
2: so hardik you're actively driving the car but the tesla helped mo- show you there was like a sensor that told you that there was a car near you and so that avoided the crash
4: yeah, the car uh, moved into my lane, and I was in the blind spot of the car. I didn't realize the the person moved in without signaling, and the car noticed, but I didn't notice, and the car decided to brake on my behalf and saved me. So I just want the, unless somebody goes through that, they won't understand that the the cars are actually better than uh, human eyes.
2: Well, Hardik, we're glad that uh, you didn't get into a crash. Thank you uh, for your comment. Uh, this uh, goes into my next question for you, uh, Neville Stanton. What, based on your research, what levels of automation are safe as we hear you know, cities and states thinking about piloting these self-driving cars on our roads?
3: Yes. Well, um, as your, uh, the person that phoned in said, there, was, uh, there are occasions when these systems will help you. And indeed, Automation has been in vehicles for a long time in various different guises and has undoubtedly prevented accidents. But I don't think that the task of requiring the human driver to monitor the automation uh, does indeed make it a safer car. I would say we have to move up to a higher level of automation where we free the driver up from any kind of monitoring task to make sure it's safe. So we're talking, you know, in the Society of Automotive Engineering uh, jargon, levels four and five where the driver is freed up of the monitoring task.
2: This is where we live. We're talking about autonomous vehicles and the questions that still need to be answered about how humans interact with this technology. Uh, Joining us uh, from the UK, Neville Stanton, Professor of Human Factors and Engineering at the University of Southampton. And uh, joining us now by phone is Carol Atkinson Palumbo, Associate Professor of Geography and Co-Director of the Transportation Technology and Society Program at UConn. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. So we were curious about some of the research happening here in the state regarding autonomous vehicle technology. We know that's something you and your colleagues are studying at UConn. Um, From the conversations we've had so far, um, what are some of the uh, key points uh, as we move forward on, you know, making sure that this technology is safe, but also finding ways uh, that they can contribute or complement, you know, our transportation system that we have now?
5: Right. So... First, I'd like to share some background. So, for the past six or seven years, my colleague and I have headed up a team at UConn called the Sustainable Cities Research Group. And my colleague is Norman Garrick, who's a professor in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department. And we've worked with a lot of students, undergraduate as well as graduate, on a really wide range of topics relating to sustainable transportation. And a couple of years ago, students started asking us questions about autonomous vehicles because they'd started to see news articles about them. And some of the big questions that they had were things like, how are the, how is this technology going to affect cities? Are they going to be able to work in complex environments with lots of people? So sort of crowded city streets and Other questions like, is everybody going to be able to afford to use the technology? So when we started to look at the existing research, we realized that there was a lot of work that was focused on the engineering aspect, things like the sensors and the mapping. But there wasn't very much work that was being done on these broader societal impacts. So what we have done is established a research group to look at these sort of much broader impacts to things like cities and environmental issues and so we have a lot of professors from the school of law from other disciplines like environmental psychology history and communications, to sort of look at these other aspects and we're not so much focused on the technology but rather the the positive and negative impacts of these technologies and our big goal is to think about these impacts so that we can maximize the benefits to society that would come from adopting the new technology.
2: Now Carol, I should mention you're also on the state's autonomous vehicle task force. This was something that was uh, unveiled uh, about a year ago, lawmakers, commissioners from relevant departments, citizens like yourself. Um, what exactly was the task force uh, uh, given as a responsibility as we look towards AVs on the road in Connecticut, and what's happened since the launch? Right, so that's that's a good question. So.
5: You're correct that we did meet in July 2018. Senator Carlo Leone chaired the opening meeting of the task force back then. And the task force was established with the mandate of recommending what rules would be needed for AVs to operate on Connecticut roads. And so in the wake of that meeting in the summer several of us have met to start working out things like the subcommittees and we're all continuing to do the research in the background but we haven't formally convened again and I think a lot of this is to do with the changeover in governance so my understanding is that the deadline for the task force that was sort of initially coming up is going to be extended and that we're going to meet formally in the next few weeks.
2: Uh, so meanwhile, there was also, uh, I, be- I believe, uh, municipalities could have applied to be testing AVs uh, in their cities or towns. Uh, do we know what happened with that?
5: From what I was able to find out from the person who was coordinating that effort for the Malloy administration, there were a handful of applications that were submitted, but none of them were actually approved so that we don't have anything live sort of being tested in Connecticut right now.
2: Mm. Well, that's uh, disappointing to hear. Uh, I want to take a call, Jackie's calling from Norwalk. Jackie, I believe you're also on the task force and we spoke to you on a previous uh, Where We Live. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, so uh, we know that in the state of Connecticut, uh, all talk towards uh, transportation uh, is tied to the T word, tolls. Is Do you feel like that's uh, something that's uh, distracting policymakers from thinking about the future and, and ways to uh, be more sustainable in our transit options? Well, I think, um, you know, Carol mentioned,
6: you know, briefly uh, just a few minutes ago, that the changeover in administration has caused somewhat of a delay. And I think that um, the funding of transportation and just the attention that that draws um, has taken away from talking about autonomous and what the impacts are going to be on on the state, uh, which is a shame because um, it's something that is actually already here. There are cars running on our our, our roads that have uh, various levels of autonomous technology operating on them. And um, the work that we need to do to kind of embrace the higher levels of you know three, four and five in autonomous technology are kind of needed. Um, so I think that the tolls um, are taking away from that focus, um, which is which is unfortunate.
2: Uh, Meanwhile I mentioned the uh, different municipalities applying to have these pilots on their roads. Uh, You're down in the Stanford-Norwalk area. What's happened with Stanford's application?
6: So we're in the process of um, reapplying um, based on some feedback that we got on our first application in Stanford um, and working closely with Condot to uh, address some of the issues that uh, the state wanted to look at um, or understand before approving our pilot.
2: Uh, Jackie Lightfield, again, uh, calling in uh, from Norwalk, also on this Autonomous Vehicles Task Force. Thank you for that update. We appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Our guest uh, joining us from the UK, Neville Stanton, before we head to break, just quickly, um, as we look at research into human factors, something that policymakers should be paying attention to?
3: Oh, definitely. uh, No doubt about it. Um, And I think, um, you know, need to be thinking about, you know, what sort of requirements they'll put um, on any testing that they allow on their roads. So I I would be very cautious about um, just allowing people um, freedom to do what they like. Um, I think they need to take account of, you know, the possible hazards and think about what safe testing would look like.
2: Uh, We heard Jackie mention the different levels, so from zero to five, five being fully autonomous. Um, In your research, uh, quickly, Neville, uh, the most, uh, the the safest option right now uh, would be where uh, in this spectrum of levels?
3: Uh, Well, either uh, remain where you are, which is levels one and two, which is what we currently have on the roads, or go straight to levels four and five, which actually is quite technologically challenging at the moment. Uh, The most dangerous levels, I think, are at levels two and three, where we've got this uh, requirement for human overwatch on the system and calling them back into um, control of the vehicle, which could be quite quickly in the case of sensor failure.
2: And I believe uh, the, there was a, a highly high-profile uh, crash in Arizona uh, where uh, someone was killed uh, because the monitor in the self-driving car, I believe it was an Uber uh, pilot, um, was distracted looking on their phone and wasn't able uh, to react in time. So uh, very important points that you brought up. Uh, Neville Stanton again, professor of human factors and engineering at the University of Southampton in the U.K. Uh, thanks, Neville, for joining us. We appreciate it via Zoom. Thank you very much. Also uh, with us by phone, Carol Atkinson Palumbo, Associate Professor of Geography and Co-Director of the Transportation Technology and Society Program at UConn. Carol, thank you for joining us. Uh, We appreciate it. And again, there's a symposium happening at UConn next month, April 1st. Uh, A lot more discussion happening within our state about the future of AVs. Carol, thank you. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Coming up, the city of Boston has developed an autonomous vehicle testing program. What can Connecticut learn from its efforts? We're going to find out after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's no surprise many of Connecticut's young people often look to Beantown as the place to live. If you follow the development of autonomous vehicle technology, Boston is where it's at too. At least two AV companies are piloting self-driving cars there. City officials launched an autonomous vehicle testing program to consider ways to make its transportation system safer, Manageable and better for the environment, among other goals. To explain, joining us now is Chris Carter, co-chair of the Boston Mayor's Office of New Urban Mechanics. Chris, welcome to the show.
7: Thanks for having me today.
2: So, Office of New Urban Mechanics, tell us about that and what your job is specifically.
7: Yeah, so we're an R and D lab embedded inside City Hall, and we work uh, to make the lives of people that live and visit the city of Boston better. Um, Often, sort of looking at complex socio-technical challenges but really thinking about how we put people in the center of those challenges and and think about the future of Boston for them.
2: Is it unusual to have an R&D team inside City Hall?
7: Uh, It's becoming increasingly more typical for bigger cities, but it's still a little bit of an anomaly.
2: And so you're working uh, to um, oversee AV testing along with the Commissioner of Transportation. So why focus on autonomous vehicles?
7: Yeah, so we began this work a few years ago uh, at the direction of the mayor. And it was on the tail end of a complex sort of two-year process uh, of t- talking with the public to get their ideas of what they wanted their city to be for mobility reasons. And the things that kept coming up uh, in, in sort of those interviews with residents was that they wanted safer streets, particularly for people on bicycles uh, and pedestrians. They wanted a more reliable transportation network. And they wanted a transportation network that was able to sort of work for them and be consistent. And when we looked at the potential of this technology, we thought it had great potential to make our streets safer, potentially reducing the number of crashes that we see and the number of fatalities on our roadways, as well as providing better services, You know, if we think about these as being fleets of vehicles moving around, uh, better services into neighborhoods that are maybe cut off a little bit from the current transportation network.
2: Would you say overall, uh, residents in Boston are excited about the idea of AVs on the road?
7: I think it's probably a mixed bag at this point. There's certainly lots of curiosity on the topic. Uh, And we've been working, you know, to bring this technology to the public so they get in a chance to experience it and ask really thoughtful questions about what this can mean for their daily lives.
2: So what does that mean in terms of uh, what kind of testing's happening on city streets right now?
7: Yeah. Uh, So right now there's uh, three companies that are approved for testing and two that are actually out driving on Boston roadways right now. Um, and they're confined currently in the south boston waterfront portion of the city they're out doing sort of vehicle testing there's always a safety driver behind the wheel there's usually uh... another engineer that's in the passenger seat uh... and they're sort of uh, refining that technology and then we've brought a number of residents uh... over to those companies to be able to take test rides to be able to ask engineers questions as well as uh... host a robot block party and autonomous vehicle petting zoo on city hall plaza the last two years that's seen you know, around four or 5,000 people show up, an opportunity to really see those vehicles up close and, and think about how this might transform uh, the way you get around in a city. That
2: sounds like an interesting outreach uh, for a city of Boston residents, but why uh, South Boston particularly to have these companies uh, testing out there?
7: Well, the, the way we have structured the testing in Boston is a little bit different from other places in the country. There's a strong sort of municipal and state collaboration here on this topic. And we looked at places where we could slowly grow over time as the technology was proven. So we started actually in an industrial park that was in South Boston. Uh, It was a relatively sort of complex street network, Uh, but still a lot of the things that you would see on a typical Boston street, buses and pedestrians and cyclists and and truck traffic. Um, And then as those companies sort of met various milestones, we graduated them out of that region to other places sort of adjacent to it. Um, There's a lot of mobility challenges to be solved in that area of the city, so uh, there's potential use cases we could imagine there in the future, whether that's providing sort of overnight service to third shift workers or connecting people to the cruise port in a more direct way. Uh, But in the early stages, it was really about that sort of confluence of street design as well as the right mix of complexity for the technology.
2: When we think about complexity, what, jaywalkers, are people double parking?
7: Yeah, uh, there's, you know, we never like to talk about jaywalkers in Boston. It's uh, it's sort of a derogatory term that came out of uh, some vision of motordom during the 1920s. Um, you know, we're trying to design a city that actually really works for people. Whether you're walking, whether you're in transit, whether you're on a bicycle, that's sort of the modes that we're prioritizing because we know as we grow, we can't actually fit more people in cars uh, on our streets. So when we think about this technology, it's really about... How do we make sure that it 's shared? How do we make sure that we 're utilizing the asset in, in the best possible way? So the things that they 're actually experiencing in South Boston are what you would experience you know on any boston street there 's definitely double parking happening you know there 's trucks that are sort of uh, pulled over to the side or might make wide turns in various places there 's these long sort of sixty foot uh, MBTA buses that are on that route as well that they have to sort of understand and decipher those movements um, there 's multi lane uh, vehicle traffic as well as you know, bike lanes and protected bike facilities, all the things that make up a city street is what they're trying to make sure they learn. We think that's really important because we want these vehicles to actually work in Boston. You know, uh, driving around in, in southern Arizona is very different than what it is in a New England City, and we really want this technology to be able to work for our residents.
2: I understand there are different levels of automation, I think from zero to five, zero being fully controlled by humans, five fully automated. So when you talk about having engineers within the self-driving cars themselves, can you talk about the levels and and how that's uh, playing out?
7: Yeah, the focus in Boston is on levels four and five automation, which is vehicles that don't need human interaction. I think there's a lot of research pointing to the complexity of having a human have, have to sort of uh, step in in the exact moment of crisis uh, to address a situation, um, we feel that that is probably not the safest place to be. You know, there's uh, that, that being able to sort of have the vehicle move without that human movement is imp- or sort of thought and cognitive load is important. So the work that we are doing is really with companies that are focused on those levels four and five, but until they get there, there is immense importance in, building trust and safety uh, with the community, and we do that by requiring a safety driver. And usually, in most cases, uh, the vehicles also have that person next to them that's looking at what the vehicle's doing so that the safety driver is purely focused on the task at hand. And there's been protocols that have been set in place to make sure that they're you know, not behind the wheel too long, that um, there's a communication back and forth between that passenger and that driver to make sure that everybody's seeing everything.
2: That's interesting you, that you bring that up uh, because uh, when you meant, you mean earlier when you mentioned Arizona, there was that very high profile crash involving an Uber or self-driving car. The monitor was actually distracted at the time of, of the crash. And so these protocols did that happen after the fact, Chris?
7: You know, a lot of uh, it's a good point. There was a, a long conversation we had with the companies that were testing here, and many of them were already in place. but we actually took that as a moment to sit down with the companies that were testing here. To pause and testing, and to reflect on the safety plans we had already put in place, uh, and then, you know, do sort of a, a public uh, push of what we had already agreed to, uh, but sort of, uh, you know, put it in a, a form that was more digestible so the public could have peace of mind. A lot of those things that we think uh, would have been helpful in Arizona, whether that's, uh, you know, not allowing personal cell phones in the vehicle, to the length of time that a safety driver can be behind the wheel. Uh, we had already agreed to here in Boston, and I think that's indicative of the the trusting relationship between the city, the state, and the companies that are testing here.:
2: We talked earlier about the challenges in a New England a city or town uh, in terms of AV technology. But when we think about congestion and uh, grids, that might was that one of the reasons <laughs> these companies were interested in piloting in Boston?
7: Yeah, it's certainly, uh, you know, New England is is fairly complex, right? We don't have any roads that go straight. They all sort of follow meandering paths of whatever the topography of the land might have been. Uh, Yes, the companies that are here in Boston are interested in both the complex weather that we have, as well as the street networks, as well as, you know, some of the personal behaviors that show up on our roadways that are different than other places in the country. And um, they feel that all those challenges are unique to this area and worth solving. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Well, when you think about, uh, you know, the strategy or long-term plans of, uh, you know, having AVs, uh, you know, as part of the transportation landscape, um, what would that mean for, say, public transit? Because, you know, buses and uh, subways move a lot of people. And with uh, AV technology, this idea that, you know, there could still be a lot of congestion if these self-driving cars just, you know, uh, you know, go around the block over and over waiting for, uh, to pick up the person uh, uh, that's at an appointment or at work. And so what does that mean for for mass
7: transit Chris I think that's an excellent point and it's a a, the point that the mayor has been trying to make uh, on this topic another thing is now is a time to double down our investment in public transportation Um, the city of Boston has been uh, taking away sort of street space and reallocating it to bus lanes um, to building protected uh, bicycle facilities and to expanding our, our walking network you know we really feel that people are at the center of the the sort of mobility in the city. And we need to make sure that those modes work best first. And AVs are a technology that maybe help augment that, whether you think about an autonomous public service in the future. you know, In the executive order that Boston put out that sort of began this work, the mayor said, we are particularly interested in autonomous vehicles that are electric and shared. uh, Because we feel that if we just do a one-for-one swap of your personally-owned vehicle, now it drives itself. Uh, we've missed a huge opportunity, and we've probably made things a lot worse for our city and for the planet.
2: Uh, as you move forward, um, you know, how does what's the perspective of the city of Boston in terms of how uh, autonomous vehicles should be regulated? Is it something I know the federal government's been uh, mulling it over or coming up with guidelines? I mean, what so far was city of Boston learning?
7: Yeah, a, a reason we started this project was in part to learn those governance rules. You know, this is a new topic, and we didn't know what we didn't know. Um, there's a role for each level of government to play here very much in the same way that it works with human drivers right the federal government does an amazing job of setting vehicle safety standards you know the, making sure that vehicle that gets on the roadway is going to be safe for you to occupy and the state does a great job of licensing the operator behind that saying you you have uh, tested it well enough to to operate this vehicle and then the city sort of sets how does that vehicle actually operate on those roadways or the municipality? What's the speed limit? What's the design of those roadways? How does it work? Um, I think, you know, as we remove the driver from that, there's a question for the state and for cities and for the federal government about what are we licensing? Are we licensing the vehicles, the driver, uh, and who has sort of all the jurisdiction over that? It's, they're really thorny issues, uh, and they're likely going to be sorted out over a number of years, if not decades. Um, but we're at the table to have those conversations with our colleagues across government, uh, and, the, and and hopefully get a jump on this to be able to learn from real-world experiences as we go through it.
2: For our listeners uh, who are curious about AVs, or maybe they're a little fearful. I mean, what would you tell them about this, uh, you know, emerging technology, and how soon we'll be able to see these vehicles on our roads, where it's not, um, and you know, something that's uh, the novelty wears off.
7: Yeah. Uh, you know, so I ride a bicycle around the city every day here in Boston, and uh, I look into the windows of other drivers uh, that are on the roadways, and I often think about the protocols we put in place uh, for safety of AV testing here. It's possibly one of the safer vehicles on the roadway. It's got a car that's looking in every direction, and it's usually got two people inside. It's solely focused on the task of driving. So at least in the testing phases, uh, I feel very confident in the, in the safety uh, the pieces that we've put in place, uh, which gives me a little bit more peace of mind than when I look into some of the other vehicles and we're constantly worried about uh, you know, roadway distraction increasing with people using cell phones and other things. So for communities that are looking towards this, cities and towns are usually the closest to residents and trying to sort of meet those needs that they have. This is certainly a topic where you want resident input and engagement every step of the way uh, because it's going to be a learning process for everybody.
2: Chris Carter, co-chair of the City of Boston's Office of New Urban Mechanics. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
7: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Thanks for listening.